Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the NBA and several other leagues are boycotting games in wake of the shooting and death of Jacob Blake. Scott Radley from the CHML Evening Show joins us to talk about that. Could Hamilton City Council get behind a revived LRT project that was mentioned yesterday by Leuna President Joe Mancinelli? We'll delve into that. Ontario finally revealed the rules for COVID-19 school outbreaks, and not a lot of people are very happy about it. And a team from Lawson Health Research Institute and Western University in London are reporting some discoveries when it comes to COVID-19. The lead researcher, Dr. Douglas Fraser, joins us. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Surprising the move by the Milwaukee Bucks yesterday uh, to not show up. I mean, they were there. Everybody's in the bubble, but they would not play basketball. Uh, so all the games were canceled yesterday. And... Uh, well, a Bucks forward Sterling Brown said they really had no choice. Over the last few days in our home state of Wisconsin, we've seen the horrendous video of Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times by a police officer in Kenosha and the additional shooting of protesters. Despite the overwhelming plea for change, there has been no action. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. Uh, there has been activism in the past, but uh, we have to wonder just how long this is going to go on and how widespread this is going to be. I want to bring Scott Radley into the conversation. He uh, hosted the Scott Radley Show, heard every evening on 900 CHML, and of course he's a sports writer for the Hamilton Spectator as well. Scotty, thanks for joining us today. Uh, did this move catch you off guard? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, like there, we had heard that the Raptors and the Celtics were talking about this um, for tonight's game. Um but yeah, no, uh, we hadn't heard anything that it was going to happen yesterday, and then uh, you know, once once one team or once two teams, one game decided to not play, then it uh, you know the next game there was no way that if if two teams said we're not doing it, then the next two teams are going to come on the floor, and if that happens, the next two. So you're right. I mean, the big question is where does this go from here? And and once you've once you've started down this path, what is the what is the thing that gets them back onto the court? And that's, um, you know, that's, that's really a tough question because, I mean, what has been, we know what the catalyst for this was, what the latest catalyst for this was, was the shooting in Wisconsin. But what the players so far have said they want is change. Well, I mean, and look, that's a, that's, a, that's a fair thing to be wanting. But what does that mean? What, what is significant enough change that you say, okay, now we can go back on the court and things have changed enough that we can go back to playing basketball? Is it simply that they would be happy if the officer was charged? Is that, is that change? Um, is, it, uh, you know, is it something bigger than that? And if it's something bigger than that... Um, how do you how do you gauge that? How do you again? How do you decide when it's for them when you want to go back and start playing again? It's it's it's, it's not it's not a simple thing, Bill. It's it, it is really complicated and it's really sort of vague right now, based around a very specific thing. Well, and, and a cumulative thing too. I mean, George well, Floyd course, comes into this, and a number of other things too, and you can go all the way back to, to Ferguson, Illinois, I guess, if you want, from a few years ago, and on and on. Uh, it, it did kind of catch me off guard, although your point's well taken. And, and by the way, I was watching some of the U.S. media coverage of this yesterday. Uh, CNN was the only one that, that seemed to get it right. It was actually the Toronto Raptors that started this conversation. Uh, Pascal Siakam 
and uh, Norm Powell and uh, Fred Van Viet were, were musing about this, as you mentioned, about the game that's supposed to be happening tonight. And we still don't know the fate of that. Uh, but they're all in the bubble. I mean, you know, they're all in the same place there. So they're all talking. I mean, even if they're not playing, uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of discussion about what was going to happen. Uh, and the Bucks, obviously, uh, you know, with the first ones out there, decide we're going to do something about this. Uh, two teams, as you know, Scott, just to make sure our listeners are fully aware of what's happening, uh, the two Los Angeles teams, the Lakers and the Clippers, have voted to not finish the playoffs. They just Now, that's not an official vote. That's just the consensus on the team. At some point, though, it may come to that where the whole thing just may blow up and say, look, we're not going to do this. Uh, we're going to withhold the one thing that we can give you, and that's our talent, and as an as a expression of, of protest like this. Uh, and I think that's and, and we'll, I think, Bill, that's, and that goes without saying. I mean, how do you hear the players, and you've taken this stand yesterday, and then you come back and play today or tomorrow. Well, what exactly has your stand been? That we, we just delayed a game and that was supposed to be our big message. I, I mean, look, the, to me, to me, it, it seems inevitable that this thing is going that, that we've probably seen the last game of the season because I don't know, I don't know how they, I don't know how they make the case that they're really making a case if all they did is simply said we're taking a day, and that's all, and 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 nothing outside the bubble in the broader world that with the change that they're demanding, if nothing changes. I really don't believe they they make all that much of a point. I mean, they've looked, they've made a point, they've got us talking, but I don't think the point is all that great if they just go back and play again tomorrow. Well, there's there's no option, I, I, as far as I can see, anyway. And and what we should mention, by the way, that uh, there were some other athletes that followed through the the WNBA. Uh, of course, uh, the the players, uh, to a large extent, uh, the Milwaukee Brewers game, uh, they refused to play again, and. Uh, just so people don't understand, the geography here is uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, is about a half hour away from Milwaukee, a little maybe maybe an hour away anyway. So that's that's their neighborhood. Uh, are you surprised that more teams didn't take them up on this in other sports? Well, I mean, a number did. Um, you know, we heard, for example, that uh, the Blue Jays were on the field preparing for their game and weren't even aware of this happening, and so. You know, read that maybe the Blue Jays now today that they're going to sit out. I mean, the NHL in some corners is taking hits for not sitting out. Um, what do you think about that? I've, I've seen some of that criticism on social media. You know, they, they had a minute of silence or something like that, and they just said end racism, and, and that seemed to be it. Now, okay, let's play hockey. Bill, let me say something. Um, I, I, I'm not embarrassed to say when Liz, your producer, called me up this morning, I'm not embarrassed to say that I was not the first choice for this segment. And that's fine, because she was trying to get people down in the States who are involved in this and in Milwaukee and other places. And I know she called five or six different people. And either they were too busy or they said, no thanks. This is a really, really tough issue. This is a really delicate, dicey, tough issue. And the reason I mention that part is not self-congratulatory at all. What it is, is pointing out, well, when you now go to the NHL or to other people and say, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you going to do? And then if you don't do the right thing, for a lot of these, I don't know what the right answer is. Because let's say the NHL does now say, okay, you know what? We're going to sit out. Well, let me go back to the point we just had a moment ago. How long must you sit out for the point to be made? And if the NHL doesn't play today as a gesture of support, but plays tomorrow. Are they wrong for playing tomorrow if the NBA still isn't playing? 
Like, this is an incredibly complicated thing that I don't know what the, what the proper response, short-term or long-term, is. Perhaps some people would say, well, it's easy. The short-term response is you stand in solidarity with your other athletic brothers and sisters and you don't play. Perhaps. But again, there, it, once you open that door, you have to have given some thought to, okay, what's the next step? And the NBA may have given some thought, and the players and the PA and the ownership and everything else, they may have already given some thought to this because the discussions were going on with the Raptors and the Celtics, and that was already out. But I'm not sure the other leagues or the other league's players were really prepared for what happened yesterday, and so I'm not sure they're at the point yet where they know if we do this what then and that's a tough spot well, to you know what for that to happen though scott your point's well taken uh to, to skip one game or say we're going to do uh these guys that did this yesterday and and you know we've heard from a few of the players on the bucks and and lebron i'm sure you saw some of his uh tweets about this yesterday they are not mourning the death of jacob blake they're angry that this is going on. They've had, uh, this is like, you know, this is enough. And, and, and you know, Le- LeBron talked about that and others. So this is not just, okay, we need a day to kind of get ourselves together and mourn his loss. They're really pissed at what's going on. And you're yeah. right, this is not, this is not going to get solved in 24 hours. Uh, it's, it may not even get solved on November the 3rd when America votes to see who the next president's going to be. Yep. Which, by the way, is still a factor in this. Uh, we know that. Uh, and so I, I don't know where it goes from here. I understand exactly what it is. I support them. Uh, the NBA owners have jumped on side, but what choice did they have? Because we need to remind people, this was not done by the NBA. These are the players themselves that said yes. we're going to do this. And, the and NBA so the NBA is a own- player-run league. And when I say that, I mean, unlike a lot of other leagues, the players have a lot more power. The NBA over its years, from going back to the time of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Dr. J and all that, this was a league that built itself around the faces of the players. This was... This yep. is a star league, unlike most of the other leagues that are a team league. And so the players have a ton of power here. And so let's go back to the point. Let's say that the NHL sits out today and says, in, in solidarity, we're not going to do this, but tomorrow goes back and plays. Well, are, is the NHL then going to be accused of just doing a token gesture that was meaningless? Because those critis- criticisms will come. So if you sit, are you saying we're sitting for as long as the NBA guys are, or we're going to be accused of not taking this seriously. I don't know the answer to that, Bill, but these are things that if you're going to make that step, it's probably best for you to at least have thought through what is the, what is the next step? Where do we go from here? Well, and I'm not sure what that's going to be, and I know that athletes, I don't know about team owners necessarily, but athletes are probably considering what, if any, next steps are necessary. Uh, and more than a couple of them, from what I've heard, are saying, you know what, we should have done this five years ago when Colin Kaepernick got screwed around, uh, well, but we didn't, and, and it got to this point now. You know, Bill, it, it, you know, it's a really interesting point you bring up, because, yes, Colin Kaepernick is one obvious example around here. But you also mentioned LeBron James, and LeBron James is an interesting guy in this fight because he's obviously the face of the NBA. He is obviously the biggest star in the NBA. He's been a very loud voice in this particular protest. But if you think back to the beginning of the year when the NBA went over and had a number of exhibition games in China, and the Houston Rockets general manager sent out a tweet supporting the people of Hong Kong against the crackdown by the Chinese government. That's and right. the NBA lost its mind because there's billions of Chinese dollars at stake in the NBA, and LeBron James criticized 
the Houston Rockets general manager for taking a stand against China. And people said, wait a second, this guy is fighting for human rights and you're saying he's wrong and doesn't know what he's talking about. It's again, these are, we, I understand the issue that's going on in Wisconsin right now and what's happened previously and why the NBA players are upset. There are so many layers to this thing and so many challenges and, and so many parts to this that, you know what, it, it's, not, it's, it, it's not as clear-cut. The, the story that we're looking at right now is pretty clear-cut. I mean, the, the, the focus that we're on at this exact moment about what happened and why they did this is pretty clear-cut. But there are layers to this story, Bill, in the past and going forward. And again, I, I, I don't expect that we're going to see the NBA back on the court this year. I really don't. I'll be surprised because I don't know, I don't know how they do it. And then question becomes well what about next fall so if you if if we haven't seen dramatic societal change by next fall and i don't know again what that exactly means because there's no specifics change is a broad term do they play next fall or do they say no we're not going to play until you know like i'm not trying to be difficult this i'm not trying to be silly i mean i mean i mean no no i understand where you're coming from because the problem here is is that the, the narrative changes depending on, on on whose perspective you're listening to here? Uh, this is way beyond, as you know, way beyond a sports story. Now this is it's this is politics. This is societal. There's so many different layers to what's happening here. Uh, and to your point, I, I I agree with you. By the way, I, I think they're just going to say screw it. We're not going to play anymore this year. This this playoff thing, forget it. Matched Pascal Siakam for the Raptors said that yesterday. He said, oh, yep. I regret we yep. even started to do this. But so I I think that's going to be the consensus. But as to what? Well, they're going to be looking for indicators. And and again, I, we could spend four hours talking about this right yep. now. Yep. Uh, one of the elements I know that there's a, there is legislation right now about Black Lives Matter and about Black rights uh, that, that that the Republican Senator will even entertain now. It's already passed the House of Representatives. Things like that. It all adds up and causes the frustration and the anger. And then it just welds up when you see incidents like what happened with Jacob Blake getting shot seven times in the back, an unarmed guy that got shot seven times in the back. It's not going to get resolved in 24 hours. It's not probably going to get resolved in four months. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but there has to be some indication uh, from the, the elected officials and from authorities that they're going to try to do something about this. And, well, uh, and, and Bill, do you say, I mean, is the argument, because a lot of them have now said, you know, we got to go out and vote. So is this, is this okay, if Joe Biden is elected, are all the problems gone? And, 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 no, of course not. And, and my argument, One of them that, is. Be, well, one big one is. We, we, did have, we did have police officers shoot people when Obama was president. So yep. I'm not sure that simply electing a different person to the white if that's all this is about that's that's, that's a whole other thing bill if that's no i, it, I don't think anybody has said that it's not that singular is that what this is about it cheapens this thing if it's just a, if this is just about a political thing for the presidency to me it cheapens this thing because that's not the answer to all the ills of the world i mean look it's the, there are issues but you know, this can't just be a, in my mind, a political rallying point. This has to be something more than that, based on what they've done. No, absolutely. And to your point, at least you know when, when the, the violence happened in Ferguson. I mean, you know, Obama didn't say there's good people on both sides. There have been things happen here that just that are stoking the flames, and and that's where it is. And I I don't know where it's going to go. Uh, we'll follow the story as as always as we do here, and we'll see what happens today in the NBA because they haven't made any official announcements about what's going to be happening, uh, and other sports leagues as well. It's uh, interesting to see just how they're going to pick up on. I can give you one thing. I know we got about a minute left here. Uh, the National Football League's not going to do daily squat about this. 
uh, you know, when they start doing this. I mean, uh, first of all, because about 75% of those owners all hang around with Donald Trump. I mean, and we saw that with the Kaepernick thing. You know, they were going to boot them out of the league if they just started to, to show any sympathy for that. So it's going to be different ways of reacting, I guess, in different circumstances. Well, we'll, see. well I mean, we'll see. I, I tend to think you're probably right, but we'll see what is going on still when the NBA gets going. And if this thing is still very much aflame and if the NBA is still very much in the forefront as far as this, uh, I think maybe there will be something that happens with the NFL. But, but you know, these things, we tend to have a pretty short attention span these days in society. By tomorrow or something, the Kardashians will do something that will draw our attention away, and we'll be on to that. So, um, and if it's not still front of mind, then I, uh, you're probably right. The NBA will just carry on business as normal and, and allow the guys to kneel, and that'll be the end of it. Exactly. Scott, as always, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate you jumping on today. Anytime, Bill. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, of course, and uh, sports columnist with Hamilton Spectator. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we talked with uh, Leona Vice President Joe Mancinelli, a Hamilton resident, of course, uh, who knows about the work, great work that Leona has done. And uh, Joe talked about a, a kind of a different twist to He's a very pro-LRT advocate, of course. Uh, suggesting that federal, provincial money, and private sector money can still move this forward. Uh, there are some skeptics about this, but, uh, well, Mr. Mancinelli explained why he's supportive of this. The two levels of government and the private sector can invest in this project and, and get it done once and for all and get this project off the ground because it is a wonderful economic development project that will boost the economy of the greater Hamilton area. Uh, an argument that we've heard before, not everyone believes that. A number of people on Hamilton City Council have responded to that interview. Plus, by the way, the reaction from the provincial government, uh, who yesterday essentially doubled down and said, no, our figures are right, $5.5 billion, and we just aren't going to do that anymore. Uh, you'll probably still get money, but uh, there's another indication here, too, that they may just throw the money and everything else back on City Council and said, it's your decision, not ours. Uh, we're washing our hands of this. Let's ask John Paul Banco about that. Uh, John Paul, of course, is the counselor for Ward 8 up in the mountain and a strong supporter of LRT. Uh, JP, thanks for joining us. Glad you could be on today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. All discussions and all arguments that you've heard before, uh, the government's reaction, the provincial government's reaction to this, especially at this point, uh, seems to be as if, look, at, you're going to get the money, just, you know, that, that's all there is to it. There doesn't seem to be any commitment, any change of mind. They keep telling us that our decision is imminent, but I think it's going to be your decision as a council, isn't it? Well, just thinking about your introduction there with all your listeners in the city of London and how um, I'm sure they would absolutely be thrilled to have billions of dollars of um, upper levels of government investment and private investment in their city, and all they need to get that it would be the um, uh, cooperation of their local council. And, you know, when you put it in the context of what is actually being offered to the city of Hamilton and the fact that it's simply council that uh, needs to get behind this, um, I think it helps put it in perspective. Well, I saw some of the comments in the media today from some of your council colleagues, and uh, what support there seemed to be on council, and you know, we can talk about the numbers, etc., uh, seems to be eroding very quickly. A, a number of them spoke out of, who were supporters of it. Uh, some, some of them, of course, got dragged kicking and screaming into the party, but they were there. Uh, but they seem to be falling off right now. Is, well, this is going to come to a head. It seems as if the, the, there's going to have to be a, a, an up-and-down vote on this sooner than later, John Paul. Right, and as of right now, Metrolinx is reviewing the project, as you know, and they are going to come forward with a recommendation, uh, either 
BRT, bus rapid transit, or LRT, light rail transit. And I think that will um, put a cap on what the actual recommendation is, whether, you know, what mode. But in terms of moving forward with a project like this, um, you know, we are in an unprecedented global pandemic right now, and governments are looking at ways to um, spur on that economic recovery. And there is no better shovel-ready project in the country than Hamilton's LRT. It's ready to go, and we can simply continue where we, we left off. As of right now, we've got, um, I think it was $180 million of public monies already invested in this project. We've got the main corridor through the city of Hamilton with boarded-up storefronts, with boarded-up houses. And we can't just simply stick our heads in the sand like an ostrich and pretend like, um, well, we don't like LRT, so we're not going to do anything. Um, one way or another, we need to move forward on rapid transit in this city. And to me, as, as a mountain counselor, it's simply not acceptable for my colleagues in the amalgamated suburbs who, frankly, have never been that interested in LRT um, or transit in the city to simply say, no, LRT, we're not going to do anything because we don't want it. That's not fair to the city of Hamilton. It's completely, um, you know, it, it's putting the sacrifice of, of our city residents at stake. And it's, uh, it's, it's just further dividing our community. And we can't just go back to these entrenched political positions to say, well, nobody in Waterdown wants LRT, so I'm against it. I mean, that's just uh, that's unacceptable for taxpayers. Well, we've talked about vision or lack thereof by some people on city council a number of different times. I, I see your point. But here's, here's the thing. I've got a couple of minutes left here. I want to get your response to this. After we did our interview with Mr. Mancinelli yesterday, and, of course, the province responded, uh, the Bay Observer reported late yesterday afternoon because they had contact with somebody from the Ministry of Transportation. Now, it was not the minister. It was somebody in, in, in the department uh, who suggested that in all likelihood, and you mentioned that Metrolinx is looking into this right now, uh, you're not going to get a recommendation. They This this spokesperson, according to the Bay Observer, says Hamilton's going to get the money, and they're going to get all the data that Metrolinx has accumulated and say, here, you decide. It's up to you, City Council. We're not going to get involved in this. We promised you the money. You got the money. Here's all the possible information you could use. If that were to happen, how would this vote go on City Council right now? Well, I think that would be a, a political move by the, the federal, or sorry, the provincial government to just throw this back to council. We need a firm recommendation from Metrolinx. They're the experts. That was the task. Okay, but let's assume given. for a second that that report is correct and that you're not going to get a recommendation. We, you know, you can't. That, that, you're right. It is a political move, but that's what politicians do. Uh, if that happens, and if they throw it right back to city council on, a, on an up and down vote, is there enough support to, to move this project forward? If that happens, we get stuck in status quo and nothing happens. It would be my biggest fear. Um, the fact is that BRT, bus rapid transit, is exactly the same as LRT, light rail transit, except it's a train on rubber tires instead of a train on steel wheels and a track. They're both separated from traffic. They have dedicated stations. They have dedicated lanes. They're exactly the same except for the tires that the vehicle rolls on. Um, the big difference with LRT being in the operation and maintenance, maintenance um, phase where it is much cheaper and it has much higher uh, economic um, return. So now that we're talking about uh, private investment, that economic return in LRT over BRT, um, I think, becomes a defining factor here. So, uh, again, my, my fear is if there is no firm um, recommendation by Metrolinx, we just continue this never-ending, yes, we will, no, we won't, LRT, 
LRT debate in Hamilton, and I don't think there's anybody that wants to continue with this. We need to get on with this project and get it built. By the way, I, I just want to remind our counselors and our listeners, and I know you're aware of this, uh, some years ago, uh, Hamilton City Council passed a, a, a pilot project for LRT along King Street, uh, heading up to the west end of the city toward the 403, and they got so much negative feedback from people, they killed the project before it was even halfway through. Uh, so watch what you wish for. If you think BRT is just going to be fine, when the life is going to go on, and nobody's going to get angry about this, uh, you're going to tick people off no matter what decision they make here, so you may as well make the right one. In my, my personal opinion, I think the people that are against LRT that are all of a sudden proponents of BRT, um, A, don't understand what BRT actually is, and B, aren't actually proponents of rapid transit. They simply don't want LRT. So I, I, I'm a little bit, um, I suppose, cynical over that argument that, yes, BRT is the answer to all our problems. It's Like I said, it's exactly the same except for the wheels on the train. So if, if in fact the reporting from the Bay Observer is correct. It seems to me as if in probably in the next month or so, maybe even sooner than that, uh, this is going to get dumped on your lap. And it's going to be interesting based on some of the comments I've seen from some of your colleagues in the media today as to just where they're going to go on this and, and exactly how this is going to go. Uh, I, I don't know that people thought this was going to heat up as quickly as it has, but it's in front of us right now. And uh, your, your, your point's well taken, John Paul. We can't keep kicking this thing down the road. Uh, if you were going to vote against this, councillors, go ahead and do it and get it over with. Uh, I, I don't want that to be the result, but it's kind of looking that's the way they're going to go right now. Uh, I have a lot of respect for people that have the courage of their convictions. And uh, the fact that they're, they're, you've got too many people on your council right now, John Paul, sitting on the fence on this. And uh, that, you know, that's, that's what's causing the inertia right now, and that something's got to give. Well, it's easy to say, no, I don't want LRT, I'm going to vote against it. It's a lot harder to say, no, I don't want LRT, here's my plan, here's the funding, this is what we're going to do as an alternative. And we've been working on those plans with LRT for 10, 15 years um, along with the entire BLAST network. So it's, it was never we're going to build LRT and do nothing else with transit in the city of Hamilton. It was the first step towards building out the entire BLAST network. On the mountain, I've been working hard since I was elected to get the A-line back on track and in dedicated funding for that because that had stalled over the whole time where we've been having this debate over LRT. Everybody, everything else throughout the whole city of Hamilton has basically been on hold and we need to move on. We've got a boarded up corridor. The entire, you know, Main Street corridor through the core of our city is faced with boarded up houses and boarded up businesses. And we can't just leave it like that. There has to be a plan to somehow make a decision and move forward. Well, we'll see what the province does. It's uh, really up to them as to how they're going to do this. And uh, like I say, if the reporting in the Bay Observer is correct, uh, I don't know that they're going to be doing anything in the way to try to bring this thing to any resolution. Uh, we'll stay in touch on this, John Paul, and be watching what your colleagues do. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. John Paul Danko, the uh, counselor for Ward 8, and, uh, of course, an LRT proponent. Uh, different story in London uh, with London Transit. They had a meeting earlier this week, and uh, we're actually applauding uh, the provincial and federal governments for the assistance that they got. Phil Squire is the counselor for Ward 6 in London, also the commissioner of the uh, Transit Commission in London. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, it's good to be with you. I was listening to the discussion when I was hearing about LRT. I just about we're doing BRT in London, which is a yeah. which is a different version of LRT. So, what's happening with transit and our our situation also has impacts uh, huge impact on what we're going to do in the future and how it's going to be affected. So, we how's the, the debate? How's the debate about BRT gone, Phil? 
Uh, it was a very, very divisive debate um, in the city of London. I'm sure that's not unfamiliar to, to people in other municipalities. We <laughs> yeah. ended up doing three out of the five lines, and they're now in the process of being uh, developed. But with our challenges we're having with transit now, you know, I think we've got to start wondering how is that going to work? You know, how is it going to work if we're still having ridership problems uh, when these things come on track? So. Uh, these are big debates, but COVID has really thrown a wrench in the works of everything. It has. I know you got some numbers uh, from your staff about this the other yeah. day, and like every other community right across the country, I guess yeah. really right across North America, public transit really took a hit during COVID, and well, and continues to. Oh yeah, I mean we're 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 at uh, sixteen million dollars less revenue this year, so we've got a loss of about twelve million this year. But I think that and that that's going to be covered really essentially because the province is giving us money. That's why we were happy with the province and the federal yeah. government. They gave us 18 million. So without that, we would have had to go to our own taxpayers to cover it. But the really interesting uh, projection is that next year, uh, we're, even now that we've got people back on transit paying, we're still going to suffer a loss projected of 11.3 million. And that's really because ridership is going to be severely affected. We have a lot of students who use transit. We rely on them for their buying bus passes. And, of course, a lot of them aren't coming into London to go to Western University and Fanshawe College, so we're going to lose that. So these are really challenging uh, challenging times for, for transit, and the, the effect is going to hit us next year. And if it keeps going, as I say, our plans you know, to do things like uh, BRT are are going to be affected because as you spend more money on infrastructure and build bigger projects, it's great to build them. You know, people get excited when they see them, but then you have to operate them. And if you don't have people getting on your buses, um, these shortfalls are, are going to get uh, get worse. And of course, transit is subsidized. Every single transit ride is sure. subsidized. So it's a it's a very tough situation that's happening all over North America, quite frankly. It's uh, if you look at any transit authority anywhere, they're going to be telling you the same thing. Exactly. And, and by the way, our Hamilton listeners would understand that, uh, that you guys in London did the exact same thing that the Hamilton Street Railway did here. Uh, you know, no, they did not collect fares during the worst of the crisis. Yeah. Uh, people had, uh, you know, the back door, et cetera, yeah. uh, of the bus. Uh, but you've got a, a, a problem. I mean, we've got post-secondary education facilities here, too, in McMaster and Mohawk. But, uh, you know, with Western University there, and, it, and our listeners in Hamilton understand, our eldest daughter went to Western, got both of her degrees there. So I, I know every street and every bump on the road in that city, oh, the number of times cool. we were there. But she relied heavily on public transit, as, as did, yeah. you know, many of the students, uh, the people that went to go to Western and work at Western, for that matter. But with virtual learning right now, uh, yeah. has there been any way to quantify exactly how that's going to hit the, the economy? Because if they're not going to school and not going to campus, Phil, they're not paying bus fare. That's right. So they projected um, that we'll see 70% um, people still buying passes. I think that's optimistic, quite frankly. That's not bad if it happens. I think that's optimistic. So here's the situation. And, and this is what you have to remember. And, I, and we have a contract with the university so that every single student buys a bus pass. And they get it at a very, very reasonable rate, which is fair because they both purchase. But that's a big one for us. And, and I, I, we're, these are estimates. And if if these numbers don't match up and, and a lot of students don't buy the bus pass, that's going to be a big, big issue for us. And it's going to be a big issue sort of going forward because uh, students are not more prone to use transit in the city than, than say, you or I. 
Um, you know, they just, they're used to it. It's easy for them. They're in a city where they don't have a car. So it works out really well for them, and it works out great for us. But uh, I think anybody who's, who's relying on, on a university or college to provide their transit income in the future better be careful. And so I, I think our numbers are somewhat optimistic. But again, they're, they're budget estimates. So um, mm-hmm. that's, that's a really difficult issue. But, um, you know, people right now, the other issue that's going to happen, of course, is what happens in the fall when students yeah. come back and we have crowding on buses. What if they all want to get on one bus? And, of course, they can't social distance. Um, we're going to have a whole other challenge. So these are really interesting times uh, for transit. And it'll be really, really interesting to see how we bounce back on the ridership. But I think the public is going to have to, and other people are going to have to understand that when you do mega projects and say, you know, whether it's, and I was listening to the discussion about LRT, I think people like them. They think they're great. But the ridership has to be there to support it. And if you don't have the ridership to support it, it's going to end up being a really, really large burden on your taxpayers uh, into the future. Well, exactly. And, and I get that has to be part of the debate. It's the operating costs ongoing for a long, long time. And you're right. right. I mean, there are, I, there's, I don't think there's a, such a thing as a transit system that makes money. And they're all subsidized because it's a, it's a public service. And, and, and that's the way it should be. We get that. And as, as taxpayers, I think we're all comfortable saying, yeah, we need this. I'll pay for it. Sure. I may not even use it, but it's an essential service to a community like this. Yeah, uh, but is. you've taken it a is. hit. I guess the other thing, too, we're just about, I've got about a minute and a half left sure. here. Uh, you, you guys are, you mentioned, you know, what's going to happen this fall. Uh, we don't know from a health perspective what's going to happen this fall. I mean, our medical experts, uh, you know, and uh, I know Dr. Mackey down in, in London was saying the same thing that our medical officer of health is saying, is there could well be a second wave, and we don't right. know how bad that's going to be and what kind of an impact it's going to have. We'd hate to be back in the same situation we were six months ago. Yeah, and that's a big one, too, because, you know, the other thing is, and I'm, I'm not a person, you know, I, when people say, you know, well, we congratulate the federal and provincial governments for giving us all this money and life is great, Somebody's going to have to pay that money back one day. Sure. Um, and I worry that it's, you know, it's not maybe, you know, I'm 61. I don't know if it's going to, it's not going to be me. It's going to be my kids who are just starting out. And so um, these are things we still have to look at things and say, are they going to make sense long term with what's happened with COVID? You know, and, and COVID's changed just so many things. And um, I don't know how they're going to come back. And if we have a second wave, um, you know, the, the burdens, the fiscal burdens that are going to face municipalities are just going to be huge. And uh, I, uh, I worry about that because right now, you know, our transit system, we feel like we're getting back to normal with people paying fares, you know, um, and, and the drivers are very happy with that. Life is getting back to a little bit of normal, which people appreciate. What if that reverses itself in the fall? Um, and then you'll get a lot of the students, of course, who, who bought the bus passes wanting refunds. You know, and how do we deal with that? So there's a lot of challenges going forward, and, and we have to be very careful. We've been lucky in London. Right? Uh, we're, our cases are very, very much under control, and that's been because Londoners have done masks, they've done social distancing. But um, that, if that has to happen again where we're in lockdown, it's going to be a really a big challenge. Absolutely. Phil, great talking with you today. Well, Continue good, good luck you. With, uh, with you and on City Council. Okay? Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Phil Squire, the uh, chair of the uh, commission, rather, chair of the uh, Transit Commission down with London City Council and the Council for Ward 6. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
we want to touch on a couple of things to do with COVID-19. Uh, yesterday, the uh, provincial government uh, announced their protocol, their, their, their outbreak plan uh, for uh, what might happen if, in fact, there are some outbreaks that may be happening when the kids go back to school in just a couple of weeks. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Alison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a Professor of Public Health Sciences at the University of Toronto. Uh, uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could hop in with us a little bit today. Uh, could you maybe... I know you're on the road right now, and we appreciate that. Uh, uh, but uh, I, and so that's the, the the reality here that we're dealing with here. That uh, we're trying to find as much information as we can about this. Uh, we had just talked to a couple of people in uh, in public education yesterday that were bemoaning the fact that the province had not announced the plan. They did yesterday. What's your reaction to what they've said, Allison? Well, I I have some issues with it, and I and I think one of the main concerns I have is that the communication is really muddy and i think it's going to cause a lot of confusion specifically uh there's a couple of things that i had maybe you could comment on these too uh they say that uh the strategy calls for all members of the class cohort to be sent home to self-isolate in the result of a single positive test among the group so in other words if one child of the class uh tests positive the whole class is sent home is that is that your read on that uh yeah, I think that's right. Uh, what what troubles me though is that testing is not mandatory, so they're not asking everybody who gets uh, you know symptoms of COVID to go and get tested. So it's you know it's it's going to be up to the parents to decide if they want to get that test done. And I think that asking them to make that call is problematic. And you know so so you know it's really going to be up to the parents to police the infection rate, essentially, which is, is going to be really problematic, I think. Well, yeah, because any time any other group that's been pushed together, uh, you know, even basketball players and hockey players, I mean, when they're in a bubble like that, uh, they're tested on a daily basis uh, because of the, the, the very close interaction that they all have. Uh, we're doing the same thing to our kids now by putting them in the classrooms. Now, I, I know that the boards of education have tried to do something about the number of students in each classroom, but there's still going to be contact there. Uh, and you're right. It's, it seems to me as if the government's putting the onus on parents to be able to, to justify or judge whether or not their child should go to school that day. Uh, but what happens if they're asymptomatic? Exactly. And uh, I think the, there's a big silence here, too, about what we are going to expect from teachers. And, you know, are there going to be clearer guidelines for what teachers do if they have symptoms? Uh, you know, if they're asked to go home for two weeks, we better have an army of supply teachers on hand that are available to fill in while teachers are, are isolating for two weeks as well. So there's a lot of questions still to be answered around how that two-week quarantine or isolation period will be handled um, and, you know, whether, whether we can leave it up to parents to decide whether their kid is ready to come back to school when we know that a lot of parents are you know, going to take an economic hit if their kids have to stay home. You know, that might be asking too much of parents. Let's follow that uh, that scenario, for, if we could, for just a second, about uh, supply teachers. A you know, teacher may develop symptoms or whatever, so a supply teacher comes in. By definition, supply teachers might work at one school one day and another school the next day. Isn't that one of the reasons that the, that the, 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 the virus spread so quickly in long-term care facilities? Because there were a number of staff that were working in different places and, and possibly carrying the virus with them? Exactly. And so, you know, what, how... There's still a lot of questions around what the boards are proposing to do for 
uh, filling the gaps when teachers are off sick or quarantining. And so, so are they going to designate pools of supply teachers that are assigned to a particular school? Uh, that would make sense. But then again, it, it limits their ability to work. Uh, so there will be economic consequences there as well. And I don't think that their system is currently set up to to work that way. And so, um, you know, while I understand that parents are really concerned about their kids, I actually think the priority here ought to be the teachers who are at much higher risk uh, of contracting it, spreading it, and having adverse consequences because a lot of them, I think a quarter of teachers in Ontario are over 50. And, uh, you know, we have, there's a lot of questions about how to reduce the spread amongst teachers as well. There's one other aspect of this I'd really like to get uh, your, your read on. Uh, uh, it says an entire school could be shut down if the local public health unit finds evidence of potential widespread transmission, such as a number of positive cases with no known source outside the school. Uh, the de- determination will be made at the discretion of local authorities, but not dependent on a particular case count or statistical threshold. If not those two elements, what criterion would they use? I don't get that. How do we know if we're not doing testing, you know, if we're leaving it up yeah. to the parents? Uh, whether someone acquired an infection at school or whether they acquired it at the corner store, you know, when they were getting candy on the way home. We just don't know. Uh, and without a solid plan for deter- making that determination, uh, we're, we're in trouble. And, you know, there may well be uh, a plan for that, but there's a real lack of transparency, not just around how these decisions were taken, but behind the rationale for a lot of them. And in order for people to comply with public health measures, they need to know why they're doing what they're doing. And I think we've seen that parents are utterly confused. Teachers are beside themselves over the lack of a conversation around their health and safety. And you know, there's a real failure of communication here, not just planning. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, you'd like to think that you're going to get clarity from the government, but they just seem to have muddied the waters, and there are more questions than answers at this stage. Uh, just like every other element of this rollout, I guess, that they've announced uh, since the end of uh, July, uh, they're probably going to have to go back to the drawing ward and try to address some of these problems. Uh, uh, Doctor, Professor, thank you so much for this. I, I know we caught you on a very busy day, but we wanted you to t- jump in with us uh, just for a couple of minutes uh, to get your uh, expert uh, opinion on exactly what the government is doing here. Thank you so much, Allison. My pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Professor Allison Thompson from the University of Toronto with her read on the uh, the government's rollout plan. Uh, not so sure. Yesterday when we had the discussion, of course, uh, we were doing it in reference to the fact that an awful lot of parents were expressing a great deal of angst about, should I send my kid to school? And, and if something happens, how are they going to respond? Uh, I'm not so sure that there's a whole lot of clarity with the uh, announcement the government made. Uh, more to come on that one, I would think. Uh, Still with COVID, uh, which is uh, dominating our lives, of course, uh, one of the reassuring things about what's happening these days, of course, is, well, on two particular levels, uh, there's a lot of work going on towards uh, trying to find a vaccine for this. And uh, Dr. Tam yesterday, the uh, Canadian Medical Officer of Health for the country, uh, reassured us, by the way, there will be no shortcuts in that process, because I know there's some indications that down in the United States right now, there's an awful lot of pressure on the uh, uh, CDC to 
skip a couple of steps and just get that thing out there, which is more of a political move than a medical move. But apparently that's not going to happen in Canada, and that's good news. But on a parallel path, there's an awful lot of work being done about how to treat people that already have COVID-19. And there are some very, very important steps being made uh, down in London. A team from London is consisting of Lawson Medical Health Research and Western University are reporting some discoveries when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Douglas Fraser is uh, with the Lawson Health Research and uh, the lead on this study. Uh, Dr. Fraser, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, just having a brief read here on, on some of the work that you've done here, uh, maybe you could uh, just describe to our listeners exactly which path you're going on. These these are people that already have this and are being hospitalized in some cases, uh, but you're trying to be, I think, maybe the best way to describe this is is be proactive in the treatment as opposed to reactive as, as to how the patients develop. Yeah, right. So uh, back in March when our first uh, COVID patient came to the intensive care unit in London, uh, we were well prepared to start tackling some of the questions that were floating around with regards to this disease. And there were three things that stuck out in our minds. The first was, uh, what is the immune response? What's happening in terms of inflammation? And you may have heard on the media, there's a lot of talk about a cytokine storm. And cytokines are these small signaling mo- molecules that are involved in the immune response. Well, but two months ago, we, uh, we started uh, to, to enroll patients in the intensive care unit. And, pardon me, those with COVID and those also without COVID, as well as healthy controls. And we started to measure some of these critical molecules. And uh, about two months ago, we published the, the first paper on inflammation that was occurring within these patients. And it was very unique. It's a unique pattern that we haven't seen before. And that work demonstrated some potential therapeutic targets. More recently, we followed it up with two other studies. And... Uh, since then, one of the problems we've learned with COVID, particularly in very sick patients, is they're having a lot of blood clots. Now, all ICU patients tend to be at higher risk, but the COVID ones are at very, very high risk. And in some cases, these are, these are deadly blood clots. So we wanted to understand the mechanisms there, and uh, that's what we published uh, yesterday, I believe. And the, the whole problem there is the inflammation that we've already determined is so high it tends to cause inflammation in the actual blood vessels and the inner lumen of the small blood vessels, particularly in the lung, essentially are sheared right off. So there are some hair-like structures on the inside of your blood, your blood vessels that wave around as your blood goes by. And they not only keep cells from sticking to the wall, but they also send information down to the blood vessel to tell it, should it constrict, should it dilate. And we found those hairs are completely, completely shaved off. So that leaves the inner, the, the inner lumen of the blood vessels susceptible to cells sticking to it, particularly platelets. And platelets are the cells that are involved in blood clotting. Mm-hmm. So now we know that our approach to this problem probably hasn't been correct, or at least not optimized, in the sense that most ICU patients will get anticoagulation uh, therapy in the form of heparin or heparin-like drug, whereas now we think the focus should be on a platelet inhibitor keep them from sticking from the walls. So that's the one aspect that, that uh, we just determined. And the second part is we, we measured 1,161 proteins that are involved in all sorts of protein and all sorts of processes in your body that are floating around in the blood. And uh, we were able to narrow it down to six, which if you measure them on ICU day one, so the day when the patient starts to get very ill, we, we, we were able to determine 
that the levels of those molecules will predict the outcome for that patient. And that's important for three reasons. One is we have a good idea now up front who's going to get sick, and that allows us to mobilize resources. The second reason is that it also allows us to have very frank discussions with families and say, you know, what, is, what are your wishes? How aggressive do you want us to be, particularly if things get really bad? And the third reason is it helps us to stratify patients so that as we start clinical trials, we have a better idea exactly how, how those patients should be responding to drugs, what kind of numbers we need to enroll in those types of questions. And that's where we're at. It's fascinating research and information on this and, and adding some clarity on this. Is, is there any way, doctor, of determining who, uh, how, I mean, the, the virus affects some people different ways? Uh, who is more prone to, to the worst case scenario that you've just described here what, with what happens in, in, in the blood clot and these sorts of things? I mean, because we've, we've been told, of course, that people with pre-existing conditions are more prone to possibly get the virus. Is it also, by extension, assume that uh, people with pre-existing conditions could be the, the some of these people that are going to suffer? for the worst-case scenarios? Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. So we, we, we can't guess with any certainty who's going to get very sick, but we know your likelihood of getting sick is much higher if you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you have heart disease. All of those diseases affect blood vessels. And in fact, the blood vessel pathology is, is usually the major part of those diseases. So that could be a little bit of a setup, at least for clotting and for some of the inflammation. But we have a lot more to do to try and determine who is who is the most vulnerable. And when you find somebody who's in a, a situation like that in a very precarious position, uh, how does that affect the treatment and, and how you're going to approach that? Right. So if we know someone's going to do, or if we think someone's going to do very poorly because they have these markers in their blood that are elevated, and they're all related to their immune function, we have a few different options. We, as as they start to get sick, we may mobilize a lot quicker. So, for example, if as their oxygen levels go down, we try everything now not to ventilate them, not to put a tube in and help them with their breathing, but instead to try and let them get through the disease on their own without any heavy interventions. But with some of these patients, there's no doubt they're going to head down that road, and we might intervene earlier and try to ward things off earlier. If they have kidney problems, we won't do dialysis till we absolutely have to, until it's necessary. But perhaps if we know they're going to do poor and we see those values starting to change, we might institute dialysis earlier. So there are potential options. And there are also potential therapies coming up that are, that are actually geared towards the immune system, which you might not want to use unless you're absolutely sure that someone's going to do poorly because there could be a potential risk to them. Fascinating work that's going on, and, and so very, very important, of course, as we try to cope with COVID-19. And, and you know, obviously, the treatment of people that have already contracted uh, the virus uh, is equally as important as trying to find a vaccine for this. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. Congratulations on the great work that you and your team are doing on this. And uh, I know your work is never done, but uh, this is incredible stuff to come up with in such a short period of time. Thank you again for, for your time today. Thank you. Much appreciated. Dr. Douglas Fraser is with the Lawson Health Research Institute uh, doing some fabulous work about treatment of people that are dealing with COVID-19. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.
so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review.